CES has just passed, and I met up with some cool people there, one of which I'm talking to today. What do you do when you need a film crew, but a global pandemic puts you on lockdown? You create a crew in a box. What the hell is that? You'll find out. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week I sat down with Ira Rosenzweig, director of everything from Super Bowl commercials to feature films and co-founder of Crew in a Box. And he's got an interesting device that neither you nor I will ever need, but which Hollywood needed desperately. It's a one-stop shopping solution for putting talent on screen while in the midst of the pandemic. They were at CES showing off their Crew in a Box, and damn it, it's pretty cool. From a filmmaking perspective, that is. So we're going to take a look at it. Plus, this week, we got some potentially sad news from one of Benefit of a Dowd's best friends in this industry. LG, it seems, may be rethinking its place in the mobile world. And I wanted to give LG a little retrospective on what that means and what LG means to me and to the mobile world in general. And we'll get to that. But first, we have to dive into the news of the week. So here's a funny thing. Remember that Snapdragon 888 chip that Qualcomm came out with? Oh, by the way, I think I've settled on 888 on the pronunciation thing, so that's one less thing to worry about. Getting back to the Snapdragon, it turns out the 888 is actually something special because it isn't quite the follow-up to the Snapdragon 865 we all thought it was. Qualcomm introduced this week the Snapdragon 870, which seems to be the true successor to the 865, and if you're wondering just what the hell... You're not alone. Droid Life has a story, and it seems that the Snapdragon 870 doesn't really have all that much different from the Snapdragon 865. It still uses the same modem as the 865, and indeed, Ars Technica breaks it down as being basically just another overclock on the main core, a 3% bump, which is really not that big a deal, like, at all. So basically, this is a repackaged Snapdragon 865 with a shiny new coat of paint, and it's coming in phones like the next Motorola flagship and like the OnePlus 9 Not Pro. So at least that's not confusing. And speaking of the Snapdragon 870 and Motorola, the smartphone maker confirmed that its new Motorola Edge S will be announced on January 26th, and it will indeed carry the Snapdragon 870. The Edge S is expected to have a 6.7-inch 1080p screen with 105Hz refresh rate for some reason. What, did Motorola pick up their screens from the clearance rack at Kohl's or something? Anyway, we don't know a whole lot else about this phone at the moment. It only has been teased so far, and I'm sure we'll get more details in the official announcement next week. So let's just go ahead and talk about it next week, shall we? We have a new president now, and in respect to my listeners who are upset about that, I'm not going to spike the ball much more. Anyway, but one of the first changes that came from the White House was the White House's webpage. First of all, apparently WhiteHouse.gov has a dark mode now for some reason, but also hidden inside the code of WhiteHouse.gov is a commented note that says, if you're reading this, we need your help building back better, and then has a link to apply for a job, presumably in the coding department. It's a fun little Easter egg, and I give props to the White House webmaster for putting it in. That being said, looking at the source code isn't hard. It's something that I know how to do, but I promise you, White House, you do not want me coding a website for you. Also, what does 
building back better even mean? Building what back better? My back? Yes, I could use some help with my back because I'm over 40 and fat. It just seems like this is a deliberate piece of code to put in there to recruit the best and the brightest, and it would help if you didn't sound like a borderline deliterate doing it. I'm just saying, White House, you can build back better. Speaking of the outgoing White House administration, Ajit Pai, the FCC commissioner, submitted his final report on broadband communications in the United States, concluding that 3 megabits per second uploads is just fine for the average household who has been quarantined and hasn't seen another person in almost a year. That report is... Idiotic, as is the guy who wrote it, which is, by the way, why he's the outgoing chairman of the FCC. You see, there is a law that says the FCC has to submit an annual report making sure that broadband is being deployed to the entirety of the United States population in a timely manner. And the only way that that can happen is if the FCC dramatically lowers the bar in what it considers broadband. Think of it like this. Uh, let's just imagine that every river in the world started drying up and there was a federal body appointed to figure out why the rivers are drying up and actually to tackle the problem. Well, you could solve that problem head on and let the government know that the reason the rivers are drying up is because of global warming or whatever. This isn't a political thing, but it's just not raining as much as it used to. Or you could simply redefine what a river is, air quotes, and point to all the bodies of water that used to be called streams and creeks and say, see, look, everybody, we've got a ton of rivers out there, so I don't even know what we're all so worried about. That's basically what the Jit Pie did with the Internet in the United States, and that's also why he's very, very fired. SpaceX is looking at turning two oil rigs it purchased into water-based Starship launch platforms, or as Elon Musk calls them, spaceports, even though they're not in space. These platforms would be used to launch Starship rockets into orbit and accept landings, but to do so in a place that's surrounded by water so as not to, you know, wake up the neighbors. And that's very nice. Well, these two oil rigs were spotted by Jack Beyer, who runs nasaspaceflight.com, and shortly thereafter, SpaceX and Elon fessed up that those rigs were indeed meant to be converted into waterborne launch platforms, and it makes a whole lot of sense. The oil rigs are already designed to sit in the ocean and have cranes equipped on them, and hell, an oil rig worked great for Aaron Eckhart and Hillary Swank in the Corps, so what could possibly go wrong? Actually, it, it is a pretty solid idea, despite the movie reference, and I give props to Jason Bayer for spotting the two oil rigs. It's going to be a while before the rigs are ready to go, but our Starship dreams are getting closer. Reviews have started to drop for the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, and shocker of all shockers, it's turning out to be a not-bad phone. Actually, I'm kidding. It's actually a very good phone. I mean, who could have seen that coming, right? We'll have our own coverage of the S21 next week, spoiler alert, but in the meantime, my old colleague at Android Authority, Gary Sims, has put the S21 Ultras to his Speedtest G testing. And this time, he's pitting the Snapdragon 888 versus the Exynos 2100 variant. So, which one will be the winner, you ask? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to watch the video, and it's only a minute and 27 seconds of your time, so you can manage. But what I will tell you is while I did cover the launch of the Snapdragon 888 on this podcast, I did not cover the Exynos 2100. And am I starting to regret that a little bit? Hmm, maybe? The bottom line, though, is one is definitely faster than the other, but they're both really, really fast, so there's really no harm done if you bought one over the other, except for, you know, one of them is a little faster, so if you bought that one, you can laugh at all your friends who bought the other one! <laughs> and you're welcome. 
And in a move that surprises no one, except that it took this long to actually do it, Google is shutting down its Project Loon Internet via Balloon Company. And yes, I know it's technically Alphabet, and as much as Google wants tech writers to call it Alphabet, we all still call it Google, and it's kind of adorable. <sighs> anyway. Project Loon was a moonshot company that wanted to bring internet to areas that really had no other options. Its pilot program was set up in Kenya, and the company had launched 35 balloons, or loons as it were, to try and cover around 50,000 square kilometers. Now, I'm sure you all must be deflated to hear this news. It's not easy to see a company like Loon come back down to earth for a reality check. But when the cost of the company kept inflating beyond cost projections, something had to pop. I mean... Give. And unfortunately, Google could no longer float this idea to the top brass and expect them to rise to the occasion. And that last pun comes to you courtesy of my 14-year-old son. I'm so proud. And not only is Google pulling out of Kenya's internet, but they may be pulling Google Search out of Australia entirely. Blimey! Sorry about that. Now, the exact reasons as to why are a little fuzzy. Basically, Australia is trying to pass a law saying that news writers and news sites have the right to collectively bargain with platforms. And by platforms, they mean Google and Facebook for their pricing to display their content on those platforms. And I'm sorry, this is a terrible accent. I'm just going to stop. Google says that creates an untenable model for them and that they can't possibly meet it. The exact details of the bill are a little fuzzy, though, but Google seems to think that this will be untenable for some reason. It honestly probably isn't, but Google just doesn't want to give up some of its profits, so it's threatening to take its ball and go home. And I honestly doubt that my Australian listeners are in any danger of losing Google, but... I can't imagine that that would be anything short of catastrophic. I mean, just think about having to use... Bing. <laughs> Nobody should have to live like that. In the meantime, Google did come to terms with French media to keep on using their content, so maybe it's a similar deal, but I can't tell with that article either. Will someone please just tell me what is going on? Oh wait, that is kind of my job, and this accent is no better. A grad student named Nick Sawney watched the Biden inauguration and he saw what I'm sure a lot of us saw, a certain photo of a certain senator from Vermont who talks basically like everyone from Brooklyn. Not content to just post a meme and count the likes, Nick created a new website that did something a little fun. Simply type in the address into the site and you'll see Bernie sitting in his chair in front of your house or in front of Mar-a-Lago or in front of the Grand Canyon or wherever. It's fun but it's also expensive, as Nick found out a few days later. It turns out going viral can be pricey, since he quickly blew through his bandwidth allotment, and oh, by the way, Google charges for every hit on its API as well, so yeah, that racked up pretty quickly. There is a link on the site to buy Sony a cup of coffee, or, you know, donate $5. And by the way, there's also one a benefit of a doubt now, too. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I took the liberty of buying Sony a cup of coffee for all the traffic that I'll be sending him, so you're covered for now. Unless, of course, you want to contribute yourself to a good cause. 
And finally, if you're not interested in reliving the pulsating hellscape that was 2020, you can go ahead and skip forward 30 seconds or so and just skip this last story. But for the rest of you, a game developer built a web app called 2020game.io. It's a horizontal scroller that takes you on a tour through 2020, starting with wildfires in Australia's and going through the coronavirus and the election and ending with a vaccine. And you can't see it, but I am crossing myself as we speak. It took me two tries to get through all the different events, but I eventually did beat it, just like I beat 2020 by launching a podcast, and just like you beat 2020 by listening to it. So, you remember how last year LG got up on stage and said, Here's this wacky LG wing! Look! Isn't it wacky? Oh yeah, this is part of our Explorers program, and we've paid all these YouTubers to talk about how they're going to love using the wing as long as they are contractually obligated to do it. Oh, and of course we know we won't sell many of these. That's not the point. This is the Explorers program. We're exploring here. Look at us just being wacky and exploring the crap out of all this stuff, right? So, yeah, LG was being bold, but that wasn't even the start of the boldness. Two years ago, LG introduced the LG V50, and in some markets it included a second screen case, and LG has been building off that design for years now, and finally gotten to a place where it's actually really good. Then comes the Explorer program, and hey, LG's gonna be doing some exciting things! But then apparently LG found out how much this Explorer programs was going to cost, and suddenly they're like, oh, you mean we won't make any money on these things? Oh, oh, we're actually going to lose money on this. Aha, uh-huh, right? And whose idea was this? Okay, well, they're fired, and so are all of you. Now, where am I going with all this? A new report came out this week indicating that LG was very seriously considering taking its ball and going home, exiting the mobile phone business for good. It turns out that being third place in the world isn't good enough when the first and second place take up like 85% of the market, leaving places 3 through 117 to fight for the last 15%. It's understandable, but it's also very disappointing. This is particularly hard for me, and benefit of a doubt, because the LG V60 was the first review device that I ever received as an independent creator. And when I started hitting up old contacts in the industry about my move to independence, LG was one of the first companies to stand up and say, yes, we would love to hear what you have to say about our next flagship. So to hear that less than a year later, the fate of the entire division is in doubt, I can't help but feel responsible. I mean... Did I kill LG? I mean, when you think about it, LG was doing just fine before I came along, and then suddenly they started asking my opinion, so the next thing you know, they're shuttering the whole thing. I mean, that's the only logical conclusion, right? I could be a bit critical when I'm reviewing phones, and I would hate to think that I caused an entire division to fail, but then think about it. That means I have amazing power and sway in this industry, and that just makes me feel really powerful, and <laughs> all you phone makers, bow down to me, your phone reviewer, oh! Overlord! <laughs> I'm okay. In all seriousness, LG has been doing some really crazy and really cool stuff over the past couple of years. Dual screens, yes. Amazing camera arrays, yes. Great screens, yes. And the Explorer program, absolutely, yes. LG was doing the opposite of what it's doing now. It was experimenting and playing around and seeing what was possible out there. And that's the kind of philosophy in a company that's really exciting and inspirational. 
Of course, it's also really easy for me to say because <laughs> it's not my money being spent on these exciting and new projects. It's, you know, LGs. And they have every right to ask that their divisions, you know, actually make money, which is not something that LG's mobile division has done for years and years and years now. It's one thing to have a kid still living at home when they're 27, and they should already be out there being a productive member of society, but they're sticking around the house rent-free, trying to build up a little, you know, nest egg or a security net before they venture out there. It's a total other thing when the kid does nothing but sit around playing Fortnite all day, eating potato chips and Diet Coke, and complaining about the internet in this house sucks, and please can I borrow the car again? I get that. I really do. But it's not like LG has never done this before. LG has been a successful phone maker for some years before it tried to make a modular phone that just didn't modular very well. And since that disaster of a phone, LG has spent the next years playing it very, very safe, very muted, very understated, and also kind of bad at software updates. Nothing has really been bad about LG phones, but nothing has been particularly good either. And this goes back to what, 2015 or so? That's like Jurassic era of smartphones. But starting in 2018, LG started doing some really cool stuff again, specifically with dual screen devices. But they made two mistakes a lot of phone manufacturers make when they're trying something very, very different. One, they made the difference optional. And two, they priced it at the same level as their competition. And let's take a look at that second point first. I get it that it probably costs $1,000 to market and ship and update the LG V50. I get that it probably costs LG another couple hundos to make and ship the second screen case. But when you're trying to reinvent the wheel, you can't charge as much for your new wheel as other wheels that have been working for literal thousands of years. You need to show everybody that your wheel is better, but you have to overcome the level of trust and loyalty that the established wheel already has. The only way, the only way that you are going to do that in any kind of mass market numbers is by undercutting the hell out of that established wheel. LG didn't do that, which is why LG's wheel is amazing, but... No one knows it because they're still using their old wheels. Now, let's look at reason number one, making the second screen optional. You see, LG wanted to have its cake and eat it too. They wanted to ship a great smartphone and then an extra accessory to make it even greater. Solid business model, no arguing there. But when you don't force people to use that accessory, that accessory goes unused. You see, people are lazy. If you put even a tiny little bump in the road ahead of them, they're going to hem and haw and look for other roads to take. And it's astounding the amount of effort a person will expend to avoid having to expend any additional effort. And once you realize that, and you look around and realize how many people are going to great lengths in an effort to not go to great lengths for something, you really can't unsee it, and it's actually kind of fascinating. Bottom line, the second screen should have been shipped in the box. And yes, they should have undercut that price too. I'm going to make up some numbers here, but let's say OnePlus is LG's closest competition. If the OnePlus flagship costs $800, your flagship needs to cost $700, $750, and have the second screen in the box. That's how you put butts in the seats. And while we're on the subject, let's talk about OnePlus for a second. Do you know why OnePlus is where it is these days? 
It's because Oppo does all of its R&D for them. <laughs> I'm kidding. But no, I'm actually seriously not kidding. But no, a big reason why OnePlus is where it is today is because it spent the first four years of its life losing. It kind of reminds me of a scene in the movie Maverick with Mel Gibson where he promises to spend the first hour of a poker game just losing, only to turn around and start making some bank at the card table. But anyway, OnePlus basically lost money on all of its phones until it started to pick up some steam, and then it decided to sit down at the big kids' table and start making even better phones that were more flagship-worthy. LG hasn't done that in a long time. It's been trying to play the big kids' game, which doesn't really work. You need to change the game and make others play by your rules. Then you can dominate. So that brings us to this week, where LG is contemplating folding up its tents and calling it a career. LG still has a ton of other businesses it can build on, so it's not like the company's going under. Now, it doesn't sound like things are final just yet, so there's a possibility of an 11th hour miracle, but most analysts agree this is honestly the smartest thing LG could do at this point. Even the rollable phone it just trumpeted about at CES a week ago might not ever see the light of day, and frankly, that just sucks. It sucks, and it sucks. I genuinely love LG phones, and I love their dual screens, and I love LG's brash adventurism, so I would be one of the ones who is genuinely sorry to see them go. And I'll be the first to celebrate them if they do manage to pull something out of their hats. Our next guest on the podcast is our only our second guest to have an IMDb credit, and I'll leave it to you to figure out who was the first. Today's guest finds himself in the director's chair for everything from Super Bowl TV spots to feature films, working with such personalities as Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Peyton Manning, Kevin Hart, and more. 2020 created a unique problem in the film industry, and it's one that he stepped up to solve in a brilliant way, so it is my honor to welcome him to the show. Ira Rosenzweig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Adam. Great to be here. So um, the reason that I wanted to talk to you was because, um, as I mentioned in the intro, 2020 re created a bit of a an issue in the film industry, and you stepped up to say, hey, guys, I got this, and you created a product called A Crew in a Box. And I was wondering, uh, well, first of all, I, I wanted you to you know, give you a chance to tell us all about Crew in the Box and what it is and the problem that it was solving. Sure. So Crew in a Box is, uh, we like to call it the world's first professional quality plug and play remote production solution. So essentially, um, as soon as on-camera talent plugs it in, the box is automatically connected over the internet to a remote operator who controls every integrated component in the system. And that includes a 6K cinema camera, a three-panel LED light, two microphones, and a teleprompter slash interrotron. And once that's all connected, clients join a video conference where they view a beautiful high resolution feed from the camera and can participate as if they were on set. So um, essentially that's, that's the short of it. And we can get into the more of the details if you'd like, but um, I'm, as you mentioned, a commercial director. And um, I think it was March 17th when we heard that LA was gonna be locked down and we didn't know when production would be opened back up. Everything was just, you know, shutting down and I panicked um, <laughs> completely. I, I'm assuming like a lot of other people in my business and other businesses did just not knowing when I get back to work. And because I've been lucky enough to work with mostly celebrities uh, over the past few years, I figured if I could provide a way that a celebrity could get on camera and at least do a direct address saying, hi, I'm so-and-so watch my new TV show or 
drink this new soda um, that people would be potentially interested in a product if I could make it super high quality, but like super easy to use for the talent because I was seeing what other people were doing and they were zooming, you know, just like having someone on their laptop camera and the quality was terrible audio and video wise and lighting. Uh, I, people were using iPhones. Um, people were sending these, what, would, what they were called drop kits where different pieces of equipment would be sent to somebody's home. They'd have to assemble them and then be responsible for shooting themselves and working with talent. I know that is the last thing that they want to be doing. So um, I immediately, like that day, thought of the idea, thought there had to be a way to, to remotely control all of this stuff and come up with just like one integrated package. So um, very quickly got to work on that. And um, yeah, I think within two months, uh, we had a working prototype and when, within three months by June, we were out to market already shooting the first project. That's amazing. And just just considering like how quick the turnaround that you managed to get, because I mean, this was a problem that just kind of dropped on all of us. And and just the fact that you went to you just like, OK, I need this and this and this and this and I needed to do this and this and this go. And just the fact that you got it turned around so quickly is amazing, like so quickly, in fact, that. Um, I was watching a couple of uh, videos that you that you featured on the Crew in the Box website. There was a uh, 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 MTV Music Awards and a VMA Awards that were shot. Uh, you know, you shot the on-screen talent with this Crew in a Box. So, um, which I mean, it is pretty cool. So let's let's kind of take a tour through the hardware, if we could. Of, of crew in the box like it so it shows up in basically like a big pelican box it, it, it is kind of what it looked like um maybe there's another name for it in the biz but <laughs> that's what i would call it but it's basically like a hardcore box what's inside there yeah so it's a military grade case it's actually made by skb uh which is like a company like pelican but um the the cool thing is as soon as you lift the lid it's not like so it, You'd expect in a Pelican case like that, okay, different like foam with different compartments where you'd pull things out and attach them together. Right. Not at all like that. You lift the lid and like there's a, for better word, like uh, it's like a cage essentially with all the components housed in there correctly to mm -hmm. all work together. I also failed to mention there's a teleprompter and Teratron. Maybe I did say that, but anyway, that's <laughs> the first thing you would see. Um, and it's just like a piece of beam splitter glass that the camera shoots through. So, um, all of it is in there. All you have to do is plug it in and then the cellular bonded router connects over the internet immediately to the operator who's controlling all the components. That is really cool. And so now there had to have been a lot of software development involved with this too, to, um, in order to get the components to connect together and to the internet and to send that those controls over i mean was was all that stuff already in place and you just kind of use it or i mean it sounds it sounds like there would have had to have been a lot of custom code involved there yeah so there, it's a combination of pre-existing software um that we figured out how they you know they should work together um but also custom software that was written so i have a couple of partners on this and you know without them you know I had the idea, but I needed the right people to help implement it. And the first person I called was Dallas Sterling, who's really innovative cinematographer that I've worked with a lot. Um, so I brought him on. He actually built the prototype in his garage. And then Jeremy Fernsler, who was the VFX supervisor of last season of Westworld, uh, he came on to actually write the code, write the software that will, would allow us to communicate. There's a, there's a Mac mini computer inside crew in a box and we needed to have that communicate with the camera 
So we needed to figure out a process for that to happen as well as, as the code to be written. So Jeremy did all of that. So cool. it's really this one proprietary piece of software working with other pieces of software. That is that is really really neat. So, what were what what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in order to a get this out, get this together quickly, and b let other people know that like this exists? Because like I would imagine a lot of word of mouth and and whatnot. But um, I'm just kind of curious as to like how you went about like letting people know that this was available. So, I mean, the word of mouth, once it caught on has been tremendous, like just, you know, clients that we have telling other networks, you know, we work with over 12 networks now they're, you know, they tell each other, everybody kind of talks and word of mouth is definitely the best to start. Um, you know, it was such a novel piece of equipment. Nobody, nobody's ever heard of like a remote all in one, like plug and play remote production solution. So I think that a lot of press, once they heard about it, was like, wait, what is this thing? <laughs> and so that was an, a, initially attracted to them. And then it just kind of snowballed. And we were at CES last week um, and the attention we've gotten from that has just been incredible. Um, BBC Click, uh, which is one of the most watched tech shows in the world, like they made us their feature story. So it's nice. really been super gratifying. Yeah, it's been awesome. Well, hey, you're a featured story on the Benefit of a Doubt podcast too. I hate to tell you, it's all downhill from here. But uh, <laughs> it's not it, they're not exactly the same level, but it's still nice to be recognized by them. Yeah, well, it, it's it's really cool. And I think I think the part that really gets me is, you know, it's one thing to develop a great product. It's another thing to develop an easy to use product. And it just takes a whole other level of crazy to put them both together into something that you can just ship to. I mean, come on. I've worked with talent. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of familiar with the when you can send them just something and say, here, plug this in, set it on your table and go. And just to have it work that simply, I mean, as a reviewer, like I review technology gadgets for a living. I would love to be able to just pull something out and 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 turn it on and let it go. But that that never works that well. So m congratulations on, on doing that. Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talked that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my Discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and if you don't want to be a patron that's okay too full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month so for example trimmed interviews in january will have the full versions on february 1st i don't want you to miss out just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and you can listen to the full interviews even if you don't subscribe because i still want you to love the show there are more great options for helping me out at benefit of support that's benefitofthedowd.com slash support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadowd.com slash support. I hope you visit. I hope you take in some full interviews. And as always, I thank you for listening. So um, I'm kind of wondering if there's been any pushback um, from the film industry at large. Because, I mean, you, uh, this, this, 
device could potentially put some people, you know, make it harder harder for some people to find work. You know, if, if you could just ship them a box and they can open it up and they have all their lighting, all their sound, all their, you know, their video capabilities, you know, I'm, just off the top of my head, that's like five people that would normally be on a, on a, on a shoot. So I'm just kind of wondering if there's been any industry pushback. There certainly is. Um, and I think it's due to a large misconception. So you know, I saw, I think there was a one website that there was a comment section and it was a bit of a rude awakening the first time I saw it. Like the, the, the article itself was like, look at this awesome piece of technology. And then I go down to the comment section and people are like, oh, great, another robot taking away my job and like, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, no, no. So like, I know a lot of the other, some other people may not direct, you know, address that stuff directly, but I was like, no, I want to explain how that's not the case. So I actually started responding and wrote a long response to individual people about it. So basically yeah. this, is, this is what it is. What I say is if people were not using crew in a box, there would be zero crew because they would add, they've been, you know, asking talent to basically film themselves on an iPhone. In that case, you have no crew with crew in a box. There's five to seven people on each production that we do. That's there's a director, there's a producer, there's production coordinator. There's a lot of times a teleprompter operator. Uh, there are ACs in a lot of city. A lot of times, like people want a, a hire, like a white glove service, we'll send it to an AC. They set it up on a card outside, all this stuff. There's the shipping, like there, there's the remote operator who's controlling everything in the system. So yeah. we're like, one of the things I'm proudest of is that we've created a lot of jobs during the pandemic. So it's actually the opposite of what people think. Now, now, you know, sure, going forward after the pandemic, um, will people want to use remote production still? Sure. And if so, will the jobs for those, will the, the number of crew positions for those jobs, theoretically, could they be less? Yes. But like, I'm, you know, the, the fact that we've created all this work uh, in the last, say, I guess since June, seven months has been really great. Yeah, yeah. So, what are what are some of the what are some of the cool projects that Crew in a Box has been involved in? I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that some of them are out there now, so you could probably talk about them. So, there's probably a few others that you can't just yet. But I'm just kind of curious, like what what could we go out and uh, and find if we wanted to see like some examples of Crew in the Box? Sure. So, personally, like um, you know, I'm I'm cert- I'm directing some of them. Certainly not all of them. A lot of times, projects come with directors already attached, um, and I want to make this available to as many people as possible. But one that I did personally direct was uh, the NFL kickoff spots for NBC this year. So I got to work with uh, Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and Eric Stone Street. Uh, that was really fun. Um, and in the cases with the football players, uh, we have them for like you know Patrick Mahomes. We have them for 15 minutes to shoot three. 30 second spot. So it's like, <laughs> you really got to be on your game and, and, and ready to go and get the, the material that you need. Yeah. We've had some other really cool jobs. Like this is an example of like a job that you could never do, where it would just be too cost prohibitive uh, without doing it with remote production. Um, we did a job for the Disney family of networks. Uh, it was an anti-bullying campaign, which is also, you know, a great cause to get behind. We shot 14 uh, actors in 14 different locations in many different cities. And, you know, if you were to do that traditionally, you'd be spending a fortune. So yeah. um, the, the really doing it with remote production really made that possible. So that was a great project, too. But, yeah, there's been a, a number of um, we, we've gotten to work with 12 different networks and, and many ad agencies and brands. And it's, it's just been great. We're now we're now starting to shoot TV pilots. 
and TV shows. Um, so it's really being adopted across a lot of different sectors. So um, what is what is the life of Crew in a Box after the pandemic? Um, do you do you anticipate this is going to be a continuing market, or is it going to die with the vaccine, just like just like hopefully the, the coronavirus does? Yeah, when I when I came up with the idea, it was specifically like the idea was how can I get myself and my friends back to work? Um, once I started demoing it for networks and hearing people, you know, we did one demo where someone was like, oh, this is amazing for press junkets. We, you know, talent hates going to them. We can just send them to their house, queue people up uh, in, in um, you know, on Zoom and, and you know, that it makes it much easier for them. Other people are like, oh, we, there are places where it's impossible to find crews. We can send this for, for those kinds of jobs. Just think about documentary work where someone's flying overseas constantly. Like the, the, this is, if you can leave a crew in a box there, it just becomes much more cost effective. So yeah. I do think there is definitely a life uh, after, I think, will it slow down? Sure. Uh, do I hope that more things are turned to normal in, in person? I sure do. Like I much prefer working in person as a director. Uh, but I do think, yes, there, there is a life uh, post pandemic. What's going to be, uh, what's, what's coming up for the, uh, version 2.0 of crew in the box? What, what kind of, uh, new improvements are you looking at on the, uh, on the design? If you can share, or if you can't, that's, I can take this out and post. <laughs> yeah. One, 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 one of the things we're doing right now, as I mentioned, we're, we're, um, it's a whole system. Like when you replace, when you put a different camera in there, you have to all then put in all kinds of other components to make sure it communicates correctly and all the connections are right. So we're doing that with the red Komodo right now. Yeah. Uh, the new boxes, aside from being tripod mountable, like they have uh, levelers at each corner. So if you don't have a tripod, if you just want to sit it on a surface, like you can do tilting and oh, cool. okay. uh, horizon adjustments. I'm trying to think some of the other new things we're, we're just always, you know, upgrading the software and just making sure that the user experience is the best it can be. Um, okay, well, I think that pretty much covers um, everything that I wanted to every everything I wanted to. I wanted to thank you very much for you know for taking the time to come onto the show and chat about Crew in the Box and and honestly, I want to thank you for developing it in the first place because it's really cool to be able to sit down and talk with you know innovators who you know just develop cool stuff and so i definitely i definitely uh, count crew in a box as in the echelon of cool stuff so i want to thank you for your time anything that you wanted to uh share with my audience before we let you go where can we find you on the internet or anything like that yeah i mean you can go to crewinabox.com to find out more information about crew in a box and see some of the projects that have been shot with it uh, we're on all the uh, social media channels like Instagram and and Facebook. Uh, I think just all at Crew in a Box. Okay. So, uh, but if anyone has any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to thank you once again for your time for sitting down with our podcast, and I, you know, maybe we can have you on again when we can talk about Crew in a Box 2.0. That sounds great, Adam. Thanks so much uh, for having me. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Ira Rosenzweig for coming onto the show and telling us all about his crew in a box. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I would like to thank you for listening. Yeah, you sitting right there. It's really cool. I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.